Stay hungry, stay foolish. Most books on the topic of improving schools have reached their conclusions by studying schools. In contrast, our guest's field of scholarship is innovation. His approach in researching and writing this book has been to stand outside the public education industry and use innovation research like a set of lenses to examine the industry's problem from a different perspective. The book was co-authored by one of the influences of this show, The Innovation Show, the great, late great Clayton Christensen. Clayton wrote the following lines about our guest today. I authored my first book, The Innovator's Dilemma, alone, primarily because the process of competing for tenure in academia almost mandates solitary confinement. I have recruited co-authors for each of the hundreds of articles and books I've subsequently written because I desperately need colleagues who see things differently than me. Researching and writing Disrupting Class with my co-authors Michael Horn and Curtis Johnson have been an unmitigated blessing. Michael is one of the thousands of brilliant students I've known throughout my classes at the Harvard Business School. He has contributed his expertise in writing and in government policy to this project in a humble, articulate and rigorous way. It is a great pleasure to welcome co-author of Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, Michael B. Horn. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Those were High praise from an incredible man uh, when he offered it. I'm sure I'm not worthy of it, but uh, but but higher that you would uh, choose to uh, repeat it on the show. So I'm appreciative. I wanted to include that in the introduction, Michael, a beautiful acknowledgement of your work for this book. And subsequently, you've gone on to do more, more work by the late, great Clayton Christensen, who we've honored so many times on the show through Rita McGrath with Whitney Johnson, Mark Johnson, Scott DeAnthony and many others. But at the time of writing the book, you say of Clay, I have grown from Clay's friendship and example. To him, I owe eternal gratitude. So maybe we'll share your thoughts on Clayton Christian because he's left such a legacy in the field of innovation and disruption. Yeah, I mean, I still get emotional (laughs) thinking about uh, how magical a person uh, he was and his presence still is with us. Uh, He was obviously a brilliant and a titan of a thinker, uh, you know, contributing amazing ideas that have impacted industries uh, in the social sector, in the for-profit sector, governments, the development of nations, and so forth. Uh, But he was just such a great individual person. He was so caring, so kind. I was speaking about him yesterday in a a different context. And, uh, you know, he had, he was a deeply religious man. uh, And he, he constantly wondered and I think worried about how his interview with God would be when he finally did pass away. And I always just thought, Clay, you have nothing to worry about there. You are far better an individual, not just in terms of the breath, but in terms of the each individual interaction you've had. He was such an amazing, compassionate person and took such a genuine interest and love uh, in individuals around him. Clayton Christensen, RIP, good sir. I hope you are enjoying the S-curve in the sky. I'm sure there's one <laughs> yes. up there. <laughs> so, so I want to, I, I love what happens with this show, Michael, the, the serendipities that occur, the dots that connect. And one of those just happened 
I was reading your book and actually we, we changed and thanks for your flexibility. We changed around the dates for your show. I was supposed to record you before our guest the last day, which was uh, the, the book The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hansen. And he said something in that sh- in that show in that book that was quite interesting. And I wanted to throw it out here for you to think about. He said, when we study specific social institutions, medicine, education, politics, charity, religion, news, and so forth, we notice that they frequently fall short of their stated goals. In many cases, this is due to simple execution failures. But in other cases, the institutions behave as though they were designed to achieve other unacknowledged goals. He says, take school, for example. We say that the function of school is to teach valuable skills and knowledge, yet students don't remember much of what they're taught, and most of what they do remember is not very useful. Furthermore, our best research says that schools are structured in ways that actively interfere with the learning process, such as early wake-up times and frequent testing. I thought about the serendipity of that ahead of this book and what we're going to dive into. What are your thoughts on that as an opening question? When I was getting into this work with Clay Christensen, my brother at the time was a speechwriter at the Department of Education. And as I was doing all this research for the book, I called him up one day and I said, you know, I don't think schools were originally designed to optimize each child's learning. And he said, well, of of course they are. What else would they be designed to do, right? And I said, no, I've I've been reading about this, and I think that there were lots of other purposes that they do really, really well. They were really intricately designed around sorting the population into different tiers, around uh, mass education, making sure everyone got some of the basics, things like that. But they really aren't designed around optimizing uh, each individual's learning uh, for, for, for them. And, uh, you know, organizations, they really do well what they're designed to do, but they don't do things that they're not designed well to do. And and my take on it has been in the early 20th century, what schools were doing was just fine for society. We were still in the industrial economy and they played a remarkable role in many nations' development and success. But in the knowledge economy in which we now live, they're wholly inadequate uh, for the time where we need to really develop each individual's full human potential. And, and while I might quibble with some of the things, uh, you know, in, in, in that quote, like I think testing actually are quite important to learning, but perhaps not as we've done it, if that makes sense. Uh, uh, and so I, I think it's right. Like we don't have institutions that were built around the goals that society now has. And what's worse, perhaps, we don't have an obvious mechanism uh, to change them, where sort of the schools would die off and new ones would replace them, given given the way they're woven into the fabric of our society. I love the way you structure the book and the research where you these lenses through which we look at innovation. And for those people who think this show is just going to be about disrupting education, stay with us because the way you articulate disruptive innovation and the theories of Clayton Christensen and the ones that you've brought to life through this book are magnificent. So we're going to talk about that. But I also love the way you you touch back into history and the origins of schools and how schools progressed and evolved over time, because there's great lessons in there for people who don't know and maybe not ever thought about it before, but it's really fascinating. But right at the start of the book, you call this out, you say, we have high hopes for our schools. While each of us may articulate these hopes differently, four seem common to many of us. 
They are maximize human potential, facilitate a vibrant participative democracy in which we have an informed electorate that is capable of not being spun by self-interested leaders. Three, hone the skills, capabilities and attitudes that will help our economy remain prosperous and economically competitive. And four, nurture the understanding that people can see things differently and that those differences merit respect rather than persecution. But you say, we're not doing well in any of those four. The reason I, I wanted to call that out is that you wrote this book behind me, brilliant book, 15 years ago, and you've been working in this field, you've progressed those thoughts, etc. How have we done in the 15 years since you wrote the book? Gosh, not too well, huh? You look at the world around us, I don't think we're doing particularly well on any of those, uh, which is depressing. You know, I, I think what we got right fundamentally in the book, and we can talk more about it, obviously, but, you know, part of the book is the growth of digital technology and, and learning, right? And by and large, I think we were pretty accurate in the way we forecasted that that would find its way into America's schools and alternative uh, forms of learning uh, that are not part of schooling. But where I, gosh, I think we really underestimated or, or, or just sort of missed the mark was fundamentally when you're talking about disrupting class, not disrupting schools, which which I think is the, the situation we're in because there's no non-consumption of schooling uh, in, in the societies, you know, where your podcast is heard, right? For the most part in the US, uh, the UK, New Zealand, places like that, right? There's full consumption of schooling. Um, and, and as a result, disrupting class sort of meant we'll do disruption within a system, right? It's sort of a sub-disruption, change the classroom orientation. The, the problem is that when you start to make those changes, they're still responding to this macro uh, system that is built around sorting and, you know, averages and what percent got proficient uh, and, and these markers that are not optimized around each individual. So I'll give you a really clear one, by the way. In the United States, we fund schooling based on the number of minutes that students sit in seats. Well, organizations and individuals are very rational human beings. <laughs> they will optimize around what you pay them for. So we're, we're, we're pretty good at getting people to sit in seats, but we're clearly measuring and rewarding the wrong end of the student, I would argue. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we sort of underestimated, I think, a lot of those forces. The, the, thing, the other thing I think we got right, on the other hand, is I do think right now out of the pandemic, gosh, we're seeing a flourishing of all these alternative ways of learning, right? I, I talk to some people and they're like, my kids don't learn from school. They hop on YouTube and they get a personalized tutor essentially for them, right? And I think we're all underestimating that informal learning system that is creeping up that's highly unevenly distributed right now. But I wonder in the next sort of 20 years, can we start to move the system uh, to embrace some of the wisdom of that informal one? One of the things that constantly comes up, you called it out back then, and I keep saying back then, it wasn't that long ago, but it just feels like they're still the same complaints we have. So some camps blame schools and say they're underfunded, while others blame teachers and parents themselves. Some say there's too few computers in the colleges and the schools, etc. And I just wanted to call those out. What, what are you hearing now? What are the complaints people are making? Because we'll go into this being actually a systemic problem rather than being certain camps to be blamed. 
Yeah, and this has been my approach throughout, by the way, which is that I, I generally think there's wisdom on all sides of a conversation, and you got to pick apart the relevant pieces and find that way that sort of understands them all, because uh, everyone has knowledge and perspective when they bring to these conversations. But I, I think these debates are still with us very much, right? You know, you hear just schools are drastically underfunded constantly as a refrain. At the same time, I think we're pouring roughly a trillion dollars extra in, in, in America's schooling uh, right now from the federal government. Uh, that's going to amount to essentially a 25% increase in per pupil funding. On the other hand, you'll hear, well, we have, uh, you know, teachers that are teaching the wrong things uh, to kids. There's huge fights over the curriculum right now. You know, critical race theory being a big flashpoint in the United States, for example. Um, how do we teach reading? All, all, all sorts of just food fights that get constantly flung around. And yet, in and of themselves on any one of them, there are anomalies where you can point to something else where someone is getting good results in spite of the same circumstance. And you just say... I just don't think we have the full picture here. And it, and it goes back, I think, to the system's doing what it was designed to do, but the world's changed. And therefore, all these food fights we're having, they're being fought on the wrong plane, if you will. We, 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 need, to, we need to rise above them and realize the problem is uh, far more, as you said, systemic and, and rooted in what you know this world of schooling was designed to do. And and, and acknowledge that the world has fundamentally changed and we haven't yet met that moment. We're going to get into the whole mapping to organizational disruption as well, because that is is masterfully done. And I know that was part of your architecture of this book as well, which you did a fantastic job. I wanted to frame some of that, the perils of success that we see with organizations, particularly when they have no competitors. And I often think about this, even in my own world with, with myself, I feel, you know, we've a, a huge epidemic of obesity, a wave going across the world. Yes. And one of the things that I, a practice that I've taken on is bringing in, in um, optional resistance or optional struggle. So um, cold showers, uh, yes. ketogenic diet, fasting, all those things. We, we and, share, and we, we share that. more in common, by the way. I do all these things as well. No kidding. Oh, great. Yeah. 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 But it's funny, isn't it? I, I think like I, I, on a day like today, when I, when I'm doing a show, I don't eat at all. I just uh, water fast and mm. I feel much more clear and less foggy brained, etc. But I, I just think that, uh, and we'll build on it because that's what organizations need. They need a little bit of struggle, a little bit of extrinsic pressure. And I wanted to bring this to to education as well, because you make this case back then. I don't know if you'd started those practices back then. But you say, just as we see with successful companies in countries too, like, for example, Japan, when it reached prosperity after World War Two, an interesting phenomenon unfolded. In Japan, the percentage of students who graduated with science and engineering degrees declined. I'd love you to share this. This is a fascinating insight. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, by the way, I wasn't into these practices back then. That was more like 2011 or so that I started to get introduced to this whole world of health and fitness but, uh, and wellness more, more broadly, um, which, by the way, incidentally, I've come to believe is a part of schooling that we also can't ignore increasingly. Uh, and so increasingly, I'm thinking about how do we merge these ideas? Because I, I just don't think one or the other is going to get our society to where we need. But that, but that's a digression. We, we can go there later if you want. Um, 
but in terms of you know the the Japanese observation and more broadly, as we uh, you know studied uh, sort of the the rise and fall, if you will, of nation states, one one of the things that we saw that was interesting about Japan was that their wave of growth was essentially fueled by disruptive innovation. So coming out of World War II, Japan was a decimated society, right? Just deep poverty and so forth. And, but there was a sense that if you studied science, engineering, and math, that you could escape poverty by being part of the companies that lifted uh, Japan's fortune. So there was a demand for workers uh, in companies like Sony, right? And the, and the car companies like Toyota and Honda and so forth, uh, all the electronics brands that they're known for. And all these companies started at the bottom of the market, classic disruptive innovation, your listeners will know, and got better and better and better over time, right? There's the classic story of Sony with the transistor pocket radio and so forth. And the R&D and so forth that was done, uh, you know, was was employing people from Japanese schools that had committed to studying these these subjects uh, that helped lift them out of poverty and it grew the entire nation. Now, the challenge, interestingly, then for Japan became once they had reached prosperity at the height, all of a sudden that extrinsic pressure to go study, you know, science, go go study something that's going to continue to push the country forward, got stripped away. Now, there's some other dynamics with Japan in particular, the lack of venture capital and full employment and things of that nature. But put that aside for a moment. The, the point we make in the book is that all of a sudden they had the traditional schooling system, which if, you know, if you've been in J Japanese schools, historically large class sizes, very lecture-based, not in line with the uh, uh, what we know about the learning sciences and so forth. But it was okay because the extrinsic pressure was so high that it didn't matter how bad the education system was. A large percentage, not everyone, but a large percentage of students were going to work their tails off in after-school environments and so forth to just learn and climb up that economic ladder. But when they reached prosperity, they all of a sudden said, well, why do that hard work? And so essentially the argument in the book is, you know, America is very similar, right? My dad says, well, we've gone soft. But I think a lot of, you know, I think that's true in a lot of places. And the problem is when that's the case, you need to move uh, to the intrinsic motivation in individuals uh, to get them to work hard and study. And so you got to change the way we teach and learn so that it is far more engaging and exciting and not beating the curiosity out of individuals, which is what our school system does today. Um, and that's the only way I think you can escape sort of the President John Adams quote that we include in the book, right? Which, which is uh, President John Adams, second president of the United States, for those that don't know. Uh, he famously uh, said in a, wrote in a letter that, uh, you know, basically, I, I, I must study... Um, uh, war and statecraft and things of that nature so that my sons can study uh, sciences and maths and so forth. And so, you know, but by them doing that, they'll be, you know, their sons will be able to, to study art history and sort of these finer pleasures of life, right, as we as we get to prosperity. And uh, we, we've sort of lived out that prophecy, but not created schools that really intrinsically capture people's motivations to get them to do the hard work that, still is key, I think, for lifting their fortunes and that of the nation. I, I love that quote. And it really got me thinking about how we need those 
art qualities we need to philosophy you know a lot Absolutely. of those a lot of those a lot of those subjects have kind of atrophied in in society or there's a lack of interest in them or people pursue them because they're they feel they're no good at the the more harder uh technical skills but but I, 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 in that I saw a dilemma because of the Japanese dilemma that you proposed is we still need to understand the STEM, but we need it to be yes. more STEAM. So we need the A in there, the arts. And that that for me posed a real dilemma. You know, I'm, I'm going off topic of the book here, but it just no, I know please. it's something you work on. And I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked it because I, I have heard some people have written me in the past and said, well, you obviously, Michael, just advocate for the abolition of the liberal arts and humanities. You just want people to do this, blah, 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 which couldn't be further from the truth. I'm, I, I'm a history major for one at <laughs> uh, a college, so I, I have an affinity for the humanities. But, but my own take is that we've allowed these disciplines to become too siloed uh, and that really we need digital skills and technical skills and, and, and sound understanding of science, but we need to blend this with the wisdom from philosophy and ethics and things of that nature. I mean, if you think about artificial intelligence and machine learning, those algorithms are still fundamentally created by human beings. And if we don't have really rich conversations about trade-offs in those algorithms or biases or really interesting philosophical points, we're going to mindlessly create things that lead us to a track that we're not so excited about at the end of it as a society. We already see that right now. And uh, so in my own mind, both of these are, are sort of, it's an and conversation, not an or conversation, if you will. And, and we need far more where you have a base level of technical skill and you have this grounding in what the humanities uh, has brought us. I, I think a deeper understanding of history and philosophy and, and, and so forth is incredibly salient to the conversations we're having in today's world. Amen, brother. I, I'm so on the same page as you, particularly as you say in this, this world of artificial intelligence, which, as you highlight in the book, and technology is increasing at this exponential rate of change that's going to sure. catch, like it does so many organizations off guard, it's going to catch us off guard, us as the worker, the working force as well. You yeah. mentioned there the in intrinsic motivation and a key step you say in making school intrinsically motivating is to customize an education to match the way each child learns best. As you explain in the first chapter, schools interdependent architectures force them to standardize the way they teach and test. Standardization clashes with the need for customization in learning. I love how you put this chapter together because it's so useful for understanding standardization and modularization in organizations as well. It was probably the hardest chapter of the book to write. We wrestled with it a lot. Uh, and, you know, the basic argument, right, is that in the early years of any industry, a deeply interdependent architecture is, is very important. Uh, and, and interdependent meaning the way you make one part uh, depends unpredictably on the way you make another part and vice versa. And if you hope to do either, that organization in a proprietary way wraps their arms around both. Uh, the classic story I now use is, is IBM and the mainframe uh, machines. You know, when they first built mainframes in the 1940s and 50s, uh, they couldn't just be the assembler and seller of those machines 
because no one out there made reliable core memory logic circuitry operating systems and so forth. And so they had to literally integrate backwards and do all those things. Brilliant. Except there's a trade-off, right? So it maximized performance, which was critical in the early years of those mainframe machines. But the trade-off was to have a customized uh, IBM machine, you literally would have to redesign everything holistically, which meant you know it would cost several million dollars to get a customized version uh, of, of a mainframe. Uh, and, and as a result, it was just, it didn't happen, right? But as we start to understand how these parts work and function and connect to each other, you can create standard interfaces that allow for considerable customization in any of the uh, different parts. And so, uh, and that allows for fast customization. You know, Dell Personal Computer or the Linux operating system would be sort of the classic uh, examples of those. Dell, where you could just jump on a website, specify how much memory you wanted, what kind of uh, disk drive you wanted, the monitor, et cetera, et cetera. Dell didn't make any of the parts inside. They just quickly snapped them together in well-understood ways and then shipped you out within 24 hours a very uh, affordable, customized uh, machine. And as we look at schooling, what we see is that there are certain kinds of modularity in terms of the class structures and things of that nature. Um, But there's deep interdependence with time in particular, but also the sequencing uh, of learning that is tied to an individual's age. And uh, as well as, frankly, with the staffing model of the teacher being responsible for delivering all the content and standards in a particular given year. And as a result of those interdependence, we create a system that is deeply standardized in the way we teach and test. But, you know, the challenge with that, as you know, is we all have different learning needs at different times. Like we don't learn at the same rates. We don't learn at the same paces. Uh, we, we, we learn through different pathways. One analogy explains it to you. Another one explains it to me. In the book, we talk a lot about Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. Uh, you know, a bunch of people in the world push back and say there's not really empirical evidence for some of what he claims. I kind of think it doesn't matter because the big point doesn't change, which is that we have we clearly learn at different different ways. We have different background knowledge, we have different biases, we have different ba- uh, experiences that we bring into a learning experience that shapes how we hear, how we engage, how we listen, how we absorb any given thing. And to get a concept across, you know, if I cavalierly talk about disruptive innovation in an audience that doesn't understand it. It's not even the point of my lecture. I'm trying to make a different point completely. The audience just gets fixated on that word disruptive, and they don't even hear the rest of what I say. And as a result of that, you know, you really need to personalize or customize uh, for each individual state, their circumstance uh, that they're coming to you with. Um, but, but like we say in, in, in the book, just you know, in these ways that uh, the school system is interdependent, it, it, we, we're forced to standardize. And, and the only way we can customize in today's system is by hiring a tutor for every single student, which is prohibitively expensive for the majority of us. I love that. And you know, you were so helpful to me. I, I have a practice of writing a weekly article. And I was writing my article last week as I was reading your book. And I was mm. trying to get my head around the concept of fractals. And I went, I'm going to, I'm going to take Michael's advice here. So because I was looking at the Mandelbrot, you know, equation, all this kind of real mathematical terms. And then I remembered also a show a few weeks ago with George Lakoff, uh, metaphors we live by. And he was he was telling me how poetic and beautiful art was, 
or math mathematics was and I was like going really okay <laughs> so I went I went to YouTube and I found the most brilliant uh, metaphors for it and then I thought actually of how a tree or a, a broccoli piece of broccoli is essentially a fractal like you just break off a piece totally and, and I was like that's that makes sense to me that makes sense to the way I learn so absolutely this idea of customizing the learning is out there yeah and it's interesting I mean I, I relate that then to me when I was in college, uh, the last math class I took was multivariable calculus, <laughs> because the faculty member who explained it to, uh, who taught us, I remember Green's theorem was the one that I got stuck on. I don't remember what it means, but I just remember he would just sit up there and just sketch something on the board and just say, Green's theorem, very important, make sure you learn it over and over and over again. And I looked at the book and I looked at his you know, gibberish on the chalkboard and it just did not make any sense to me. And I realized I needed back then some sort of simulation or video or something that would have allowed me to conceive of uh, the multivariable calculus and the multiple dimensions, right, visually. But that didn't exist when I was in, in, in college, right? We didn't have Khan Academy or YouTube where you could jump on and just find a video that would have changed the way you saw it, right? And as a result of that, you know, last math class I ever took. I I think I turned out all right despite it, but you just sort of wonder what wasted talent are we leaving on the cutting room floor for these individuals that conclude much earlier in life, you know, fourth grade, I'll never get math. I'm not good at math. Blatantly not true, but there's some gap. There's some something about what your background experience is or the way you learn that just isn't adding up to what's being thrown at you. And if you could just fill in that gap or show a different example or a different metaphor or whatever it might be, you know, metaphors, and just as in politics, the, the right metaphor is amazing at explaining concepts. And so if you can get the right one that lands with your background knowledge and your experience, you, you can teach things, but you just need that opportunity for that customization. And, and most schools, because we're built on this factory line where you just got to keep marching down. It's, you know, it's October 15th today when we're recording this. It's, I don't know, you were born in the year of the lamb, maybe. Therefore, you're going to be learning this concept and then we're going to move on tomorrow. It's insane. It's literally insane. Yeah. And and it, and it was so, so helpful. I, I you know, I, I, you're after making me spark a thought now where I'll jump slightly ahead. You were talking about this, right? So now we understand what you were t talking about coming, which was the world of, of modular learning or online learning, the availability of classes in any subject on the in the world. But you gave a great yeah. example. And just to echo your point, I played professional sports. And I was always I was always getting injured because I wasn't that talented, but I was disciplined. So I was always overtraining. And I didn't have mm. YouTube to be able to guide me and go, here's a program, here's a program, here's a program. A couple of me and, and a couple of other professional players gathered together and we paid this expert to have a phone call with us for an hour. And we paid him like something like 300 euro each at the time and uh, for an hour. And that's that's what you had to resort to back then. But like, there is no excuse at the moment for the amount of content out there. But it is a mindset that needs to drip into Main Street mainstream thinking. And I say that to say one of the examples you give was a school in a, a underprivileged area in, in the States where there was a teacher and he was knocking it out of the park the way he taught a certain <laughs> subject so much so 
that all the authorities thought the kids were cheating there and they retested them and they all achieved again. This is a brilliant story. Yeah. Yeah. Jaime Escalante uh, is, the, is, is, is the teacher and uh, it, it was in outside Los Angeles. There's a great movie about it. And, and basically he believed in these kids. He was able to relate mathematics uh, into the way and, and uh, math and physics, I think it was, if, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, in the way, you know, through their lived experience and that's not pandering or just catering or whatever else. Like there's certain, you know, you can't just talk about a basketball analogy and if it has nothing to do with the content you're trying to absorb, but if it does, and you're talking with kids that understand basketball, but have never seen sailing, for example, <laughs> you better use that basketball analogy because the sailing one just ain't going to land, right? They're going to glom onto it and just get misunderstood. And I think we've in, in this, uh, not just in the United States, throughout the world, we've made a bunch of assumptions of, oh, that child will never get it because they weren't at this point when I thought they should be, right? And the reality, you know, we, we tell that story in that book in, in, in uh, a book I wrote called Blended, about the rise of blended learning. We tell another story about this child uh, in Los Altos, California, that um, I, I got to know a little bit uh, uh, when he was in fifth grade. And he was third from the bottom of his math class when he entered the school. And in a traditional math class, uh, he would have been you know, grouped in the bottom group. And that would have meant he would never have seen algebra until high school. That would have meant uh, he would not have had the classes to be able to get into a top college, right, from a math perspective. It would have shaped his destiny right away. He happened to be in a classroom that moved to a customized version where they were using Khan Academy uh, as part of the class design. And back then, this was 2010, uh, Khan Academy forced you to go all the way back to the beginning of numeracy in their videos um, to prove sort of mastery and go through all the exercises. Well, when he did that, he went back to something like second or third grade math where he had had these gaps develop. And he filled them in and all of a sudden it clicked. And so he gets then to fifth grade math and now he's not third from the bottom. He starts racing ahead of the class. 70 days in, he's third from the top in his math class. Like we make these assumptions because of we think that time is equated to intelligence when in fact it's the way, you know, your experience and the way you've, the opportunities you've had to acquire knowledge and skill and practice and so forth and we're just leaving all this on the cutting room floor. But if we can, if, if we can reach people where they are and then allow them to excel, gosh, I just think all of us could just do so much more than we've done so far. And, and again, you know, I, I know we share this in common, the, the training and the exercise and the driving yourself. And one of the yeah. things that comes with all that is beginner's mind where, you know, e even when you come to a plateau in your training, you, you go back again, you go, okay, well, I'll, I'll start with a yes. basic exercise again. And then you'll get a jump on the and the weights you can lift or whatever it might be. And I share that to tee up a story that comes later on in the book, but it was a brilliant one. It was the to illustrate assessment and assessment, like you mentioned there about Khan Academy, mm. you tell the story of Steve Spear, and his Chrysler versus Toyota story, which was a brilliant il illustration of this from an organizational perspective. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories, and I, I actually use it all the time still. Uh, and, um, and and by the way, I'll just as an aside, it's so cool to learn new things when you're a grown up and, and have that beginner mindset, but it takes a while because we've been built 
to, you know, not show vulnerability almost, right? Uh, but it's so cool when you get over that and learn new things. I, I, I got to learn skiing last year for the first time with my kids. And, you know, they're better than I am, but it's just brilliant. Uh, so the, the um, but but to go to your Steve Spears story, he, he, he writes in Chasing the Rabbit about his experience of being a uh, worker on the assembly line at Chrysler and Toyota. And at Chrysler, uh, basically, he got put right on the... Uh, uh, factory floor on the assembly line, installing the right, uh, so the passenger side uh, front seat. So I guess in, 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 you know, other countries that'd be on the opposite side, but basically the passenger side front seat. And the uh, person who was doing the job basically said, okay, car comes down every, you know, 50 seconds or whatever it was. And you have, you know, these six or seven steps to do. And uh, so you, you hoist it up here, you bolt this in there, you turn that, you shove that, you throw it down, right? Get it? And Steve's thinking, yeah, I got a degree from MIT. I can do this. No problem. So first, you know, car comes down the assembly line. Steve jumps in, he tries to do it, you know, fails miserably, right? By the time the 50 seconds are gone and it keeps moving on. This repeats itself over and over again. In the course of an hour, he installs like two or three seats correctly, something like absurdly low. And you wonder why there has to be testing at the end of the Chrysler process, you know, assessment to check what percent of cars are lemons in effect. Well, when you see how they train people and put them into the mix, right, without them having mastered the skills, it's no wonder they got to do testing to see which percent were lemons and which percent came out right. Contrast that with the Toyota experience, where when he showed up, they said, we're not going to put you in the assembly line until you've mastered each of the seven steps it takes to install the passenger side uh, front seat correctly. So step one works like this. Keep working at it, and when you've mastered it, then we'll show you step two. It makes no sense to teach you step two, though, until you've mastered step one. If it takes you two minutes, that's fine. If it takes you an hour, that's fine. If it takes you a day, that's fine, but you're not moving on until you demonstrate mastery. So he goes through this process, and he installs every single one correctly because mastery, attainment of the skill, has been woven into the training process on the front end, right? Toyota doesn't need to do testing at the other side because every single person knows how to do it exactly right every single time. And if something goes awry, they can pull the Kanban line, right, and, and fix it right in the spot. What a world of difference for training Steve Spear. Now, our education system is like Chrysler. <laughs> and why do we have summative tests at the very end of the year? Why do we have large exams in the United States that take two weeks of time? Because we can't, with any certainty, verify who has learned what, how well they've learned it, have they mastered anything. Mind you, we don't do anything with that information, really, except to sort people and for the next, you know, for future years. But you can't verify it. But if we move to what, what I would now call a mastery-based system or a competency-based system, where the time is the variable in the Toyota story and the learning is the constant, we know you can do it. And But we're going to give you the time to make sure you master it before you move on. That's a system that prizes learning fundamentally for each individual. And that's what we need um, in, in our education system. I, I've come to believe like that's the biggest thing perhaps that we need to change, uh, coupled with the digital technology to then customize, you know, 
Steve works on that first step, right? Maybe he watches three YouTube videos. Maybe you get tutoring, right, by the teacher. Who knows? But the point is uh, that mastery-based, I think, is absolutely critical. And I'll, I'll make one other point because I think it's salient to what you were talking about up front uh, about the beginner mindset, which is you get to embed fast failure in the mastery-based process and reward students for it as opposed to failure being a punishment as it is in the current system. In the mastery-based system, Steve probably failed a hundred times learning step one, right? But it was part of learning. That's how you learn. Uh, and so he, he gets this humility, but he also develops a growth mindset that my abilities are not innately fixed, but they are contingent on my perseverance, my ability to work hard and so forth. And so he can see the progress. So right now we, we talk all about perseverance and grit and growth mindset and all these buzzwords in education that we we know are important to developing individuals that can be continual learners, that can have curiosity and so forth. But our education system systematically does not reward you for any of those things in the Chrysler right way, way of doing things. And so teacher can talk to their blue in the face, but at the end of the day, we know actions speak far louder than do words, right? Uh, and so, you know, the mastery base builds in all of these characteristics into it. Um, and, and the time-based one, the current factory-based one based on, you know, the Chrysler of the world doesn't. And, and I would argue actually beats it out of ki kids because it says, actually, you know, it doesn't matter how hard you work because the next car is going to come down the line tomorrow and you'll get it, you, you know, and, and then we'll do that. And turns out it doesn't matter how hard you work on that one either because then the next car will come down the next day after that oh man you, you have i i'm glad uh i usually show it when i when i put out the video on youtube i have sometimes a split screen i'm not going to show myself because i'm like one of those nodding dogs on the back of people's cars <laughs> um so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna put anybody through that pain but you know you were saying about the you know, we, we wait till the end to measure people. And then it's kind of, oh, you suck at these things, you know, and then I get this Gollum effect, <laughs> where I think I'm no good at it. And that becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, the teacher then sees it as well. And there's that Pygmalion effect of, oh, these guys are good. And these guys aren't. I thought about that in an organizational setting, feedback reviews, we wait till the end of the year to yeah. tell somebody, oh, yeah, Michael, you've been doing this wrong for months. And you're like, going, why the hell did you not tell me six <laughs> months ago? And I could have fixed it. And like, because you're totally unaware. That was one thought that sprung to mind. But the other was something you say in the book. And this is about the, the call it neurodiversity rather than multiple intelligences. Everybody learns different based on sure, their backgrounds totally. or their experiences, etc. Or what resonates with them? You know, we, we both share the health and fitness part. So lots of thoughts from that experiences we've had can map to organizational change because we've had the experience. And I thought about what one thing you said that's really important for those who are listening who are teachers, perhaps, is that when we teach in a standardized way, and I'd love you to elaborate on this, it resonates with a certain population. And then we think those that it doesn't resonate that they just don't get it. But it's not it's not that they don't get it, it they, they don't get your learning style. And that's not a, a, that's not a slight on you. That's just you've got this little cohort. And it just so happens that it may be the majority that can align or get through that. 
I, I, I certainly know growing up, I was definitely neurodiverse as a kid. I did well. And even in society, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm an introverted as by nature, but I can operate in society. And I'm lucky in that respect. But I know that so many people can't. And when they can't, they feel alienated, they feel there something wrong with them. And that's what's really broken. Totally agree with everything you just said. And the, the neurodiversity is such a good word for it. And, uh, you know, we know that they're intrinsically and extrinsically, uh, excuse me, uh, you know, motivated people around different topics, right? Um, you may be an introvert in one setting, you might be an extrovert in another, uh, but school may reward or punish, right? Different of those in different circ circumstances based on the teacher's own style, right? Or their own way of relating. Uh, we see a lot of times introverts, for example, thrive in fully online uh, schooling settings. We're having this whole debate right now about is virtual schooling bad? Because for most kids, it seems, you know, they do better in-person learning coming out of COVID. But there is a significant percentage, it's a minority, but a significant percentage who, who thrived in the virtual setting. And I just, I think to your point, we need to get beyond the sense that there is one way to go learn a particular field or sense of study or excel uh, that, you know, we're all jagged profiles from a neurodiversity perspective, and we're probably going to all follow different pathways to some degree. You know, yeah, maybe we weren't going to leap uh, into calculus without mastering addition first, but, you know, by and large, there there is actually a lot of uh, fluidity in how we can learn things that we need to do a much better job of embracing. And, and to your point, an individual teacher can't possibly cover the range or breadth uh, of that, which is why I think we just need so many more tools. And that's what technology does for us now is really brings teachers and learning experiences and well-designed uh, learning opportunities from a variety of analogies and perspectives and backgrounds and visuals and so forth that you can now draw on. And frankly, the learner can drive uh, him or herself. And that is tremendously exciting, by the way, to give learners more and more control where the teacher moves more and more to that role of coach, you know, I, right. I'm, I'm helping you not overtrain right now, but you're going to find the methodology that works best for you. I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, David Epstein's the sport gene right now, right? Certain people, if you're constructed in a certain way, you're going to be better at high jumping with less reps. Someone else might need more reps. Um, but how do you construct that right for you? Coach who's an expert, really valuable in that, but you are going to have to play and tweak and find the right learning for you and teaching learners to own that, uh, is going to be a benefit in their schooling. It's going to be a benefit in their professional lives. It's going to be a be benefit for employers, uh, to be able to know that your employees know how to constantly relearn and upskill and learn new ideas, uh, and grow, uh, in their own careers and lives. That's tremendously important. You know, I, I was thinking about how how the role technology can play in that. Like, it's like each one of us sees through a kaleidoscope, so we see a very different view from everybody else. And then, um, what we're looking at is like a patchwork quilt, and certain colors will appeal to us, etc. But but essentially, AI, artificial intelligence, can be the matchmaker to go. Well, this works for you, and this works for you. And it's not to label us or put us into certain buckets, but it's helpful for us to go. That's how I learn. And if I if I know that, and then the teacher, for example, can facilitate that, 
it's just like you you mentioned medicine or or healthcare and when when you think about what artificial intelligence can do for that it frees up people who work in healthcare to be more human for the human skills and you give this perfect view of a future school where teachers are there's a, a teacher in the class um, perhaps it's it's a japanese class everybody's wearing noise cancelling headphones and the teacher in that world because it's technology driven it plays a very very different role this is a utopian view but also very feasible and one that will make sense today maybe not so mo- not so much 15 years ago when you wrote the book and there are schools that follow right these practices i i i think one thing i've learned is that the artificial intelligence um is probably not there yet. It might be more dangerous in the short run because it doesn't know on which characteristics, if that makes sense, to look for in differentiating. But we know the differentiation is important. I'll give you actually a really interesting study that I was just reading um, where this was in Europe, uh, where they they looked at the effects of uh, digital learning implementations that had been well-designed, so online learning, uh, to teach particular concepts or skills. And they noticed all the effect sizes were hovering around like 0.1, 0.2, which for those who, who aren't super versed in, in the research, it's that's meaningful, but not significant. Uh, and so um, then they looked beneath the averages. And what they saw was that there was a cluster of people who were like 0.7 effect sizes, which is humongous in education. And then there were a bunch of people who were sort of zero to sometimes a little negative to sometimes slightly positive, but it just wasn't doing much for them. You washed it all out in the average and you got this, you know, sort of middling uh, effect size of these digital learning after digital learning uh, tool, if you will. Well, uh, this guy had had a background uh, in, in genetic types. And so he realized that certain people with a certain chromosome, and I'm going to mess up the uh, the full science of it, to be honest, but... Um, essentially more predisposed to having ADHD, for those people, rapid feedback that digital learning uh, in these tools provides, enormously helpful. For those of us that don't need uh, so much stimulation, (laughs) it was actually exhausting at a certain point. Um, Like it would overtax us, if you will. And so you'd start to tune out from it. And so if you gave the digital learning to those that were more ADHD, which you don't need to do a, a genetic test for. You could just sort of observe as a teacher and say, I think you're going to do better with this. Uh, you saw huge gains in the learning and a more standard way of learning actually worked better for a whole set of the class than the digital techniques being uh, uh, at that time being used. Really interesting, right? About how you can start to parse these out. And I think that careful research and then embedding that with some simple tests up front in the AI in the longer run um, that could be where we can do a world of good. Uh, it, but it's going to take like looking beneath the averages at these anomalies and say, why did it work for that person, but not that person? What's different? And then do a few more tests. And, and we don't do that kind of testing and learning typically uh, in our education system. You know, even randomized control trials are thought of as the gold standard. We need to go so far below uh, beyond those because we need to be looking at these individual populations and understanding why for this person and not for the other. And we just, we haven't done that groundwork yet where the AI then can come in and really be helpful, right? Right now, I think it probably uh, would make assumptions that that for some people would actually have negative outcomes. But the point is still, you're totally right on, right? Which is 
actually a teacher's expertise and intuition might be able to say, hey, you know, Michael, I think you'd do really well if you looked through this set of analogies and and, and read this text and then looked at these videos and to, to learn this concept. I just have the instinct that this would fit with you, right? And, oh, gee, that did work. And then, by the way, I'll start seeking it out because I'll hopefully will develop individuals as their own advocates uh, for how they learn. And I want to call this out for those people who are watching us, principals of schools or people in education, that you're very practical in this. You're like, this is expensive. We know customization in the old world before technology is extremely expensive. For example, special needs assistance, etc. And you make this beautiful point. Everybody is special needs. Yes, <laughs> everybody. Some some can just work within the dominant paradigm in for use in, in a classroom. But that doesn't mean that everybody's not unique. And as you say, singer songwriter Danny Deardoff said, we're all differently abled, not disabled. Yeah. I love that. But let's map it back to innovation. I promised that for our Do audience. It. I thought about how an organization scales and from customized offerings, knowing customers and staff members by name to larger scale operations. And here you say, in the one room schools that characterized public education during most of the 1800s, teaching was customized by necessity, at least by pace and level because the room was filled with children of differing, differing ages, ages and abilities. Teachers spent most of their day going from student to student, giving personalized instructions and assignments and following up individually in tailored ways. So it's, it was very useful for for me to understand I, I started school in a country school, I was in one of those schools in Ireland. And, oh, wow. You know, there was there was multiple ages in the class. And I was the kid who was always doing the older uh, kid, not because I was intelligent, I just got bored. And I used to try and do it. And the teacher I, I got spanked. <laughs> I got slapped for uh, for for doing the wrong homework for doing the homework above my age. And I was just I was just bored. But um, yeah, I, I think it was really useful to go, you got to look at the origins of this thing, and see where it started. And it started from there. And it was through necessity for loads of changes, uh, prosperity, um, growth of populations, uh, change the, 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 the space race, all these things had mm -hmm. a, a massive impact. Maybe we'll give a little bit of history, because that's really useful to understand why scaling meant standardization? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, and I think it has lessons both in the education realm and, and more broadly about where society is now perhaps returning to or going. Um, because it, it's interesting, and I'll, I'll root it a little bit further back than I think I do in the book, which is to say, originally, people learned really through apprenticeships, right? You, you sort of got sent off to a, a particular individual uh, you know, you, I, I would work in a, a, a cobbler, right? Learning how to make shoes. And, and I would be trained really in a one-on-one -on -one way. And as you say, schools at that time were just very basic institutions for the early years where it was this one-room schoolhouse. And not everyone, though, was expected to sort of go through all of schooling. Very few, in fact, did. And it met, it, it met the economy, that craft, if you will, that craftsman economy uh, of the time. We move into the Industrial Revolution, and all of a sudden we realize, holy cow, competing with fast-rising Germany and, and, and Japan and other nations means we got to make some serious investments in the baseline knowledge and skills uh, of, of, of our individuals in this country. And we need to move from this 
very bespoke one-room schoolhouse apprenticeship sort of system into one where everyone is going through high school. Well, what's the most economical way to do that? Ah, the factory, right? So we're going to model our education system to do mass standardization, which is really, you know, can explain uh, the rise of Britain late 1700s all the way, you know, through the U.S., uh, 1970s really, right, is this mass standardization uh, economy. And education matches that as it starts to become mass standardization as well. You know, one teacher, many students group them by age. We're going to do the same thing at the same time in the same way. Tomorrow you do the next lesson, right? That's that time-based, factory-based system. Well, now we're moving into this knowledge economy away from the industrial economy. And we're seeing that actually you need to develop everyone's knowledge and skills. We don't have a technology historically that allows us to scale with that. Ah, digital learning comes in and now we have mass customization, right? That's in the economy. We can do it at a mass stage, right? Uh, all, all of these digital uh, platforms that we now have can give you your version of Salesforce that's ideal for you, that for, you know, a different one for me, I pick my apps and so forth. My Facebook feed looks dramatically different from yours, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we need the same revolution uh, in, in our education system where we still have the mass part in, in the sense that we are going to educate everyone. We are going to reach everyone, but the scale now can use the technology uh, to extend the benefits of that one-room schoolhouse and apprenticeship model, but to every individual. And, and, and that's the real notion is, you know, again, I can be learning on that computer program, Japanese, at the path and pace that makes sense. I jump on a conversation with a native speaker somewhere else in the world, right, virtually, and then we go, and then I jump into Duolingo, and I do some quick, you know, skill practice, and then I come back into a conversation and yeah, there's a teacher still there because teachers are really important to be that coach and that guide and that expert alongside of you, but they're not responsible <laughs> for delivering the customized plan for every single child or teaming up. Like we're able to use these marketplaces and digital repositories to create that mass customization and, and different pathways. And, and so in many ways, I think, you know, this is a story of society evolving and the economy evolving uh, to a scale, to scale ventures that go from customization to standardization back to customization. And now we're doing the same thing through our education system. One of the things that had a, a dramatic impact, is that um, apple cider vinegar or drinking, by the way? <laughs> I, I already had my apple cider vinegar this morning. This is the kombucha now. <laughs> Good for the gut, my friend. Good for you're, the gut. You're, 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 you're just nailing me left and right here. I feel like I'm... Uh... <laughs> I, 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 only, I was going to say you need to drink it through a straw. That's all. Uh, you know the way... Yeah, yeah, so you don't get the enamel uh, yeah. on your teeth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, you're ahead of me, man. You're ahead of me. So um, let's go to uh, disruptive innovation because... This, this is, or by the way, for our audience, there's nine chapters. We're on just going on to chapter two, and I skipped so many questions in chapter one because this chapter two and three are so good for people who are working in organizational change. It's, it's a refreshing way to look at disruptive innovation. And in this chapter, you use the theory of disruptive innovation to show how schools in the United States have con constantly improved. And this is throughout the world. The schools have improved. And again, you and I were not 
we're not slamming people in education. In fact, it's not quite the opposite. It's it's here's knowledge and hopefully some metaphors and ways of thinking about it that will help you see it the way it has evolved and through the lenses of disruptive innovation. I'd love if you'd start here with a brief overview of sustaining versus disruptive innovation, because uh, I never get tired of hearing the varying descriptions here. We had uh, your former colleague who speaks so highly of you, Michelle Weissa, on the show before. Oh, she's wonderful. Yeah. She, she said the same about you, and she gave us the beautiful story of Toyota. But I'd love your version of the sustaining versus disruptive innovation. Yeah, I, you know, my, qu- my quick story on it is um, that disruptive innovation fundamentally transforms a marketplace by bringing products and services that are more affordable, convenient, accessible, and simple, where before the dominant paradigm uh, is more centralized, inaccessible, complicated, and, and, and ex- expensive, and leaves out a whole set of people. Uh, and so you know, the classic story in my mind is is the computing one, right? Where the IBM mainframe, we talked about that earlier, comes in, you know, $2 million to own a mainframe machine. The majority of us don't have access to computers. Fast forward a bunch, we have, you know, DEC and the mini computers and then Apple personal computer. And those initial personal computers are so primitive that the customers and the companies that made mini computers look out at them and say, they'll never amount to anything, right? (laughs) They're just not that important. And what they don't count on is that the technology will reliably and predictably get better and better and better and be able to solve more complicated problems. And with a cost structure that's fit around these individuals that couldn't afford your large machines before, these non-consumers, initially uh, children and hobbyists. And you know, at some point, those people who are being served by the mini computer are going to say, gosh, I love this functionality you just gave me for an extra $100,000, but it's it's actually not worth it to me to pay another $100,000 for it. I'm going to jump out to this personal computer because it's good enough now for my needs. And one by one, people migrate out to this new disruptive innovation. And that's how transformation occurs. It's not a revolution that we say, stop doing this and everyone move over. It's on a one-by-one basis, we make the decision this new thing is good enough, right? Uh, and and I like the affordability, convenience, accessibility, simplicity now that it's bringing alongside it. And that's fundamentally the process of disruptive innovation. It's so tricky for the incumbents to catch it because from their worldview, it doesn't make sense to make something that is uh, going to bring less profitability as they're measured, uh, that is more primitive, that can't serve their existing customer base. And so there's almost never a decision point at which it makes sense for them to jump out. And so disruption is really a a theory of competition or even just game theory uh, at its root. Now, sustaining innovation, you asked, in that context, I would argue the biggest misreading of Clay's work is that sustaining innovation is bad and disruptive innovation is good. If I look at it, sustaining innovation is absolutely critical to compete because disruptive innovations they only occur every so often. Like they're not very frequent, actually. If you look at education, I'd argue the printing press was perhaps the first disruptive innovation. And then we waited some 600 years, basically, for online learning uh, to, to, to appear. So they, they don't occur that, that frequently, it turns out. Uh, but sustaining innovations, continuing to get better for your current users 
is absolutely critical. If you don't do it, you don't keep up with their needs, with their desires. Someone else will in many cases. And and so it's absolutely critical. It's just not going to fundamentally change the basis of competition in a market to focus on affordability, convenience, accessibility, and simplicity. You know, economies of scale can accomplish some of that, uh, obviously, but not to fundamentally change the value proposition itself. Yeah, and some examples we're seeing of this, like an example would be uh, even the iPhone, it's reaching a saturation point. So the great innovators, Apple versus Nokia versus BlackBerry, get into the market, they keep going iOS, higher iOS, new iPhone, 13 now yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, and at a point, you kind of go, I don't need to upgrade. And then what they do is actually upgrade the technology. So and actually, a lot of people are skeptical about that and kind of going, they're forcing you to upgrade. But it's just Moore's law. It's it's exponential change in technology. Even the, you know, the chargers need to be upgraded because they actually, they won't charge as quick if they're they're not upgraded chargers. But but I, I often think about that. And, and now some people are kind of going, you know what, I'll get a cheap Android. It can do as it can do the job that I need it to do now. I don't need, and maybe I don't need the status of having the iPhone. And they kind of look the same now, anyway, <laughs> despite all yeah, the patent yeah. wars. But but um, I wanted to map that back because this is a key point: targeting a non-consumer. And then back to why I I mentioned about you and I doing the keto or doing the cold showers or doing breathing or strength training it's introducing some extrinsic pressure, it's introducing competition. And because the way education is structured, there's no competition in the system. So there's no extrinsic pressure to change. And this is part of the systemic problem. But I wanted to highlight something, a quote here that's really useful for people working in innovation, you say, in your studies of disruptive innovation in the private sector, you were not aware of a single instance in which for a, a for-profit company was able to implement successfully the disruptive innovation within its core business. The few that survived disruption did so by creating under the corporate umbrella a new business unit with a new business model attuned to the disruptive value proposition. Asking the public schools to negotiate these disruptions from within their mainstream organizations is tantamount to giving them a demonstration a demonstrably impossible task. And yet, despite these and the jobs to be done changing throughout the years that have the decades that have gone, they've done remarkably well. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, schools, and as I've come to think about this, I think schools do have an enormous benefit that companies don't, which is that they are good at educating <laughs> and that education is the one tool, if you will, that you can sometimes sidestep some of the organizational change challenges uh, that you have to, to introduce a common framing. The, the way Andy Grove was able to get Intel to launch the Celeron ship at the bottom of the market and disrupt itself through doing education of its 2000 mid-level managers and then creating a separate unit. Um, you know, teachers and, and school leaders have that ability to reframe problems uh, if they use it. I think all too often they don't, but uh, but I think it's been beneficial to them as they've moved from inculcate the values of the democracy to educate everyone to a baseline for the industrial economy to uh, make sure uh, everyone is attaining based on test scores in, in effect, and then essentially cure poverty being, being sort of the most recent task uh, that we've given them. You know, I, they've struggled for sure more recently because the system is so anathema now to what we're asking them to do. 
And I think you're right, by the way, there's not enough competition that has forced the sustaining innovations that we actually need right now from schools on this particular dimension. Uh, but, but I do think schools have managed remarkably well. And so the, the, the fact that we're in the predicament we are now is through no fault of any individual, I would argue. It's, it's just the organization, right, was designed decades ago to do something fundamentally different. And, and, you know, the interesting thing actually through, through your prism that you just introduced, really what we're seeing the disruptive innovation with online learning, I would argue is not of schools in society. I, th I think schools will continue to be important, but it's the disruption of tutoring, right? From that individual that you had the money perhaps to be able to get the tutor for your sports training. Most people didn't. So they did without, well, now I can jump on YouTube and get a training course, right? I can have a yoga instructor. I can do a, uh, there's CrossFit apps, right? That, that I can do now. And, and yeah, it's not as good as a personal trainer, you know, co coaxing me and yelling at me and so forth in the face, but it's better than the alternative, which is nothing at all. And it's getting better and better and better. And so I, I think that's what we're seeing fundamentally is, you know, when we, when we did the, uh, title for disrupting class, how disruptive innovation will change the way the world learns. I kind of wondered if the subtitle might be for every child, a tutor, because that's fundamentally, I think the disruption that we're talking about is how do we create that tutor like experience for every individual? There's a project I'm working on, Michael, I'll, I'll talk to you about it again, but it's called edge school. And it's based on the concept of hedge schools here in Ireland, where we had to educate ourselves in private, you know, often at expense and breaking the law back when we were ruled by England. And um, the principal there in the school, Alexandra College, she, she has introduced the idea of coaching the teachers to become almost executive coaches. And I love this idea because the, the term coach comes from the word stagecoach, bringing somebody from point A to point B. And that's the mindset she's trying to instill to help the children go through this journey that they're on back to the stagecoach analogy. I never knew that. I, by the way, just to jump in for a moment, I, I never knew that uh, basis of the word coach. Um, but I think it's powerful what you just said, because there, one of the other food fights in education is sort of the progressive versus the uh, more conservative view uh, of schooling. And the conservative is sort of this top-down instruction, direct instruction model. And progressive is sort of let children follow their curiosity. And, uh, and, and the conservatives object because there is a lot of research that direct instruction for a certain thing is, is really important, particularly for a novice learner. Now, I would argue it doesn't have to be from the teacher. There's other ways to get it to, my, to the conversation we've had. But um, I think they fundamentally, when they hear where teachers are going to become coaches or guides, they sort of hear, oh, that means they're going to sit back and not use their expertise. But that's not at all what we're saying, right? That, that person is actually more involved at an individual level now and uh, making sure you get the right learning at the right time to help bring you. It's just not in this top-down, one-size-fits-all manner that is just so obviously out of step with, with how we learn. I'll give you one other analogy, by the way, on this, which is, um, you know, gaming, the whole industry of gaming. They, they basically have built it around a magic formula where if the individual who's doing the gaming succeeds something like, I'm going to, again, mess up the exact percentage, but it's 92.x percent or 93.x percent. You want them to succeed in the game roughly that amount. And the reason you want them to succeed that much is you want it to be 
not a hundred percent where it's just too easy that they grow bored like you did in school and they just like, forget this, but you don't want it to be too hard that they conclude I'll never get it. And then they tune out. But if you get that sweet spot, you hook people (laughs) to keep doing. And that's what we got to do in education as well. How do you find that? And there's research around this, the zone of proximal development, it's called. How do you get at that sweet spot where the thing I'm learning, it's just above me, but it's not so hard because, you know, humans are lazy. We don't like to do lots of, of, of hard work that I'm just going to say, forget it. But it's also not too easy that I'm just going to say, well, I'm bored. I'm tuning out, right? And we don't hit that sweet spot for individuals, but this is what this is really all about. It's dopaminergic. It's like that, you know, yes. getting a permit, uh, uh, set the bar just high enough to achieve, not too high where you'll fail I, and feel like a failure. Michael, just want to check in with you. Are you okay for another 10 minutes? Let's do another 10 okay. minutes. Let's do it. Let, let's map all this back to uh, organizations again, because thinking back to the origin of the school and the way society has asked schools to do different jobs. We mentioned, for example, a space race, when the space race happens and the Russians beat the Americans, America declared it was a education crisis. So more pressure on the schools, different elements of pressure, more people went to school, etc, etc. Then you had um, more less racial segregation, more education. So that so the systems got crammed. But Ultimately, it was the same starting point. And it was hard to break that paradigm, just like it is in organizations. And there's a a paragraph I pulled that I absolutely loved. It's much, much later in the book, but it mapped back to this earlier point. You said over a time, as a result, the relationship between the design of an organization and its products gets turned on its head. The structure of the organization now determined the architecture of its products. This change in the direction of causality occurs in every successful organization. When the task simply is to improve individual components, sustaining innovation, the organizational structure facilitates these improvements. But when a system needs to be fundamentally reconfigured, an organization's compartmentalized structures impedes the work it must do. Therefore, Innovating managers must ensure that the company's team's structures are tailored to the nature of the task. And to do that, they often need the tool of separation. I absolutely love that paragraph, brilliantly phrased, but this is the same for education. 100%, right? And, and you know, the analogy, just in the corporate world, I, I did a stint at America Online, uh, AOL, and I, I was responsible for pushing out the AOL Pictures product, which I suspect none of your listeners will have ever heard of. (laughs) And for the reason that I'm about to describe, which is that the organization took the original business plan and twisted and turned it and morphed it to meet the needs of the organization rather than the users for whom it was designed originally. And those were at odds with each other. And so, you know, when marketing and finance and sales and everything said, just make this change, just make this change, just make this change. By the end, it met the needs of the organization to sustain itself, right? As opposed to, and uh, that's happening in schooling as well. We really need the tool of separation as a result to rethink what are the pieces and how do they fit together? It's, It's one of the reasons I'm very excited by the trend right now of micro schools and learning pods that have popped up all around the world in the wake of COVID. They were here before COVID, but they've grown, you know, just significantly uh, since we've had to do this. Uh, 
and and what I think it's going to tell us is that certain individuals they need just a lot more supports that support them way back in their lives around health and fitness and mindfulness and sleep and uh, you know making sure that their parents know to do their work and more hours of, of of care because their parents need to be working and so forth and so on. And other kids like are way overserved on those dimensions. They come from families where that would be feeling like way overreach. And they need a very different architecture, right, as a result of that. I, I think the learning, actually, because the digital piece can be common uh, through, through much of this, but all the other things that I think are so important for learning uh, probably need very different architectures that are not based on, gee, honors class for social studies in ninth grade or something like that versus regular or, or, or remedial, uh, but much more... Uh, around this full set of services and how we integrate them to support learners uh, is the is is the rethinking I think that we need right now around this. Uh, and just one more plug because we're 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 clearly uh, jiving off this health fitness thing. There's a lot of research that shows after you do 30 minutes of exercise, your brain is far more primed to learn and absorb information and so forth. No one offers you know, that's not true. The majority of PE physical education classes in schools, though, are not designed as part of, you know, integrated with the fabric of the learning to create this virtuous circle. What would it look like if we were intentional about that? You know, and we said, hey, you've just been sitting for an hour, go run three laps and then come back and we'll do a little bit more, right? What, what would that look like? What if we talked about, hey, you know, you could eat that sugary snack right now, but really you're just going to get the spike and the crash afterwards, right? And it's not going to sustain you over the long run. A slow carb plus some fat would do much better, right, for your brain right now. Like we don't, we, we haven't thought about these things uh, with the level of specificity I suspect we need. Yeah, and, on, and again, on the health thing, like most, I think a lot of health problems come from a lack of education about what foods are good for you, what foods yes. to avoid. The same for learning, the same with organizational resistance. Most of it's driven by fear because of a lack of knowledge. And that's why I absolutely love speaking with great people like yourself who understand this and are sharing it to the world. Michael, I'm just going to say to you off air here, will we, would you be on for doing a part two? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Will, yeah. How would you be fixed next yeah. Wednesday? Give me two oh, seconds. Let me look. Because <laughs> I'd love to keep going if you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're, I, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to geek out. This has been a heck of a lot of fun. Give me two seconds, Wednesday. Um, I've rarely done a, a part two, but there's so much value in the book. There's so much great stuff. No, I appreciate that. Um, so I have a, a 9 a.m. Eastern that I don't think I can move, but I could do... Oh, yeah, well, I can do later. I can... I could, I could do like eight. I well, I, I what I was going to say. I'll, so I could do uh, twelve o'clock Eastern for an hour. Oh, that awesome! That's five p.m. my time. Yeah, is that okay? Let's do it. Brilliant. Okay. Because okay, because I'll, I'll read the the bits I didn't get to then, and uh, maybe we could do a bit more on Nipro and that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, perfect. Okay, Let's so do I, I'll okay. I'll do a wrap up now, and I'll I'll announce that we'll do a part two. Thank you, by the way. Thank you so much for that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, this has been, this has yeah, been really great, fun. man. Uh, so um, just to let you to catch you up there, Michael and I had a chat off air, we're going to do a part two, because we're only on 
a little bit into chapter two, and there's nine chapters of pure gold in this book. It's behind me here, Disrupting Class. It's an absolute must read for people working in education, working in change, working in technology. There's so much wisdom interwoven. It's like a Gordian knot of knowledge of these three great authors. And uh, Michael's kindly agreed to do a part two with us next week. So Michael, for now, I'm going to say thank you so much for your time, your wisdom for writing this book, um, for your humility, everything. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Michael Behorn, author of Disrupting Class. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a blast. 